from yet another quarantine session in New York. This is a Sea Change Podcast, and I am your host, Ellen Mahoney. Welcome back to season two of the Sea Change Podcast. I am so excited to be back with you and start a new season. There's so much to talk about. So much has happened, and I'm really looking forward to diving in on the next journey with all of you. Thank you so much for listening. What a year it has been. And at this point, it sounds so cliche to say that about 2020 and the first part of 2021 already. And yet it really has been. You know, I could tell you the Instagram version and pretend that everything has been fine despite what's going on in the world. But I'm a human being and it has been a bumpy road. There has there's been positives and there's been negatives. There's been some real challenges. I I lost two very dear loved ones over the last 12 months. You know, I moved, I think this is the third time in a year. Um, My organization, Sea Change, definitely had its own challenges, especially in the beginning of this pandemic, as schools were really struggling with enrollment and putting a lot of fires out. But there's also been a lot of positives. And I wanted to practice what I preach and share a little gratitude to start off this season. And the first thing I want to say that I'm grateful for is all of you. It has been such an honor to work with so many of you over the years, but over the last 12 months in particular, it's just been a really moving experience to maintain those relationships with schools around the world and all of the dedicated educators and leaders out there and to meet new educators and leaders that I hadn't met before and that COVID brought us together. I'm really grateful for that. I am grateful for how hard everyone is working. I know it isn't easy. And you're probably, some of you are probably frustrated or you probably don't wanna see another post on, you know, practice self-care, just breathe a little bit. Sometimes I can get annoying and I want to say, I hear you. I I hear you too. I I actually feel that way too sometimes. Um, and, And I think that's, you know, another reason why I'm excited about this season of um, the Sea Change podcast, because yes, we will inevitably talk about self-care, I'm sure at various, throughout various interviews, but we're also going to talk about systems and structures in our schools that either help or hinder our own resilience as educators, the resilience of our students, the resilience of our community, and the social and emotional experience of school, experience of being an educator, and the learning that all of us are are working on. So I'm looking forward to that um, in particular. You know, uh, over the summer, I finally launched uh, the Circulus Institute, which was a project in the making over the last couple of years. And we, I was able to partner with Kristen Daniel. She's my uh, business partner. And that has also been something that I am just incredibly grateful for. She is a smart woman. She's a lot of fun. And we are very much aligned in our educational philosophy and our mission. So that's been great. I'm grateful for that. So what can you expect this season? Well, you know, to remind you, the Seed Change podcast is all about social emotional learning, in particular, adult social emotional learning in the international school landscape and in all schools around the world. So what does that mean? It means that we're going to be talking about topics like cultural awareness, social awareness, 
self-awareness, relationship skills, and self-management for us, the adults, as we try and model these competencies for our young people that we care so much about. And therefore, that means we're going to be talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, educator resilience, um, cultural responsiveness, my favorite topic, as you know, mentoring and well-being, and, and again, the structures and systems that are in our schools that either help or hinder um, all of those particular competencies and areas for growth for all of us. Before we go into the first episode, I wanted to dedicate this season to the two loved ones that I lost this year. The first person I want to dedicate this podcast to is my father-in-law, Tom Shaw, who passed away in June. He was a wonderful human being, incredibly warm. He always created a sort of warm and welcoming space for anyone that was around him, no matter who you were. And I really appreciate that. And I've been reflecting a lot on the lessons I learned from him about teamwork and relationships and trust building and having high expectations for people and civic engagement, really contributing to our community and, and what that can look like for each of us. So Tampa, this is for you. The second person I wanted to dedicate this podcast to is my dear friend, Stephen Masinski, who passed away a few months ago. He was a counselor. We went to graduate school together And uh, some of you may know him from his days at um, Georgetown Prep. And I want to dedicate this season to him because he believed in me during a very difficult time in my life. And he pushed me. He challenged my growth, which we all need a little bit of. And he also taught me how to show and build respect in my classroom when I was a teacher with very little experience. And It really made a huge difference in my life as an educator, and I hope, therefore, in the lives of the students that I taught. Stephen, you are a light in this world, and we miss you very much. Okay, we're going to go right into episode one of season two with a quick reminder that if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to this. Please like what you're hearing, share it trying to get this out to as many people out there that could benefit from this work that we're doing. And if you have any suggestions or feedback, please let me know. I am all ears and very open. In episode one, we'll be speaking to April Remfrey. And we actually recorded this conversation on December 11th. So it's a little bit delayed. She is an education consultant and she specifically works with globally mobile families who have children with special needs. And in particular, she helps them with the transition into new schools. She also serves on the board of CENIA, which stands for the Special Education Network and Inclusion Association, which is an excellent organization if you haven't heard of it. I've known April Renfrey for several years, but I particularly wanted to talk to her because I saw that she had created a new tool to help educators working with students with special learning needs. And I was really excited to learn more about it. She has created an individualized learning plan goal documentation tool, and I'm going to let her speak about it. Um, But I 
think it's a great capacity builder for educators and it's really going to help families as they transition from one school to another. In this episode, we talk about that tool and we talk about how the access to services, support and skilled staff for students with special needs has changed over time in the international school landscape. We talk about what the transition feels like right now during the time of COVID going from one school to another with students with special needs. And we also talk about how there's so much in special education that can be applied to all of us and we can all benefit if we include more special education practices into what we do. So without further ado, let's talk to April. Welcome April to the podcast. It's really lovely to have you here. How are you doing over there in Switzerland? Great. Thanks for inviting me, Ellen. It's quite dark here because it's about 5.15 in the evening. So it's nice to see the light coming in where you are. (laughs) Good. Well, I'm glad I can share some of the desert sunlight with you. We're excited to talk with you. I actually have been wanting to talk to you for a while. I've been following some of your work around supporting young people with learning needs. Before we get into the conversation, you and I were having a conversation about language and um, I was asking the pro- the proper terminology to use, and we were talking about how it's kind of different in different pl- parts of the world. So I may use the term learning support. I may use the term special education. I may use the term special learning needs, special needs. Um, I'm going to use those interchangeably, and I'm just going to ask everyone to be patient with us as the, there's a different comfort level and acceptability of various terms around the world, and it's it's hard to accommodate everybody. So can you tell me a little bit about, about how you got into supporting young people with special needs? And especially, I'm, I'm interested also in your transition into the international school world. I come from a family of teachers. Um, my husband and I have three siblings on both sides, and we are all either teachers or married to teachers. My parents are both music teachers, um, and I was all set to go to university with a full ride to be a music teacher and decided it just wasn't going to be right for me. I grew up in a family of the above with three, and my youngest brother really struggled with ADHD, and I watched that as a sister. Um, And then I, in third grade, my third grade teacher really struggled with some of my gifted tendencies, which didn't end up being really gifted, but she thought they were, and I I just did things too quickly for her. And Mm. she would send me to the classroom of kids that had multiple physical and mental disabilities because she thought she was punishing me and it ended up shaping my whole life. So, oh, thank you, Mrs. Warner. (laughs) Thank you, Mrs. Warner. Oh my gosh. That's working in education. You hear those stories, you know, you, I, I, you are not the first educator and I, I have similar stories myself of, of, of young people being misunderstood and their learning needs being misunderstood. And then, and that just having such an impact on, on our development. I mean, how did it, how did that experience uh, impact the way you saw yourself as a learner? Um, I think it more impacted me as me seeing myself as a helper. You know, Mr. Rogers always talked about going when something is wrong, go find the helpers. And I've always seen myself as being a helper. And honestly, at this point in my life, I need to be helping people. If I'm not helping and feeling useful to other people, it's really bad news for my mental health. So when our daughter was old enough to not really need me so much, she's 16 now, that was a really hard transition for me as 
as a mother, but also as just a human being, because I yeah. needed her to need me, but I also knew that I needed her to go and do her own thing. So that was, that was a difficult, that difficult thing for me. And you asked also, you know, how to got me to international schools. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband was a, a Russian and major IT also, but had a French minor and his dream his whole life was to work in France. And that dream came true when we were 24 years old. And he thought, oh, okay, my life goals have been met. And I was the one that didn't have the work permit. It's the typical expat, you know, the horrible trailing spouse word that we're trying yeah. to not use anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to reinvent myself and um, ended up working with families that ended up in France without services for their kids with special needs because the public school system do not take kids and they can easily say, no, thank you. So that was my role when at a very young age, figuring myself out, you know, fast forward 10 years, um, we were ready to go somewhere else again. We'd gone back to the U S I got my master's degree, uh, lived in Seattle for eight years, loved it there. Um, but we knew something was missing. Our daughter was eight. I kind of knew our language acquisition window was between seven and 10. The options were Moscow, Munich, and Zurich. And thankfully we ended up in Zurich and we've been here for eight years and have totally loved it. So here in, in Zurich, I've um, worked in an in international school. I was actually working for a foundation that was inside the school and I ran the intensive needs program. So when you were in France, when you were in your mid twenties, uh, it sounds like you said that for young people with learning, special learning needs there, you could not place them in public schools. Do you mean for the expat community or? No, I mean for everyone. Um, It's just, it's a very old school system um, that's starting to evolve a bit, but even 20 years later, it's quite difficult to see kids with disabilities in the public school. There's an organization there called Sunflower that they're they're really trying to get more kids and advocate for kids to be included, but it's a very rigorous public school system and they're very quick to say, no, you don't belong here, go find somewhere else to be. So I had a lot of families that would come on an expat contract, not investigate schooling beforehand and just say, oh, we're just gonna put them in the public system and then be left with nothing. So Mm. I set up a lot of homeschool programs for kids at that point. Wow. And you're educating me here. Think about your brother, for example. You said that your brother um, struggled with his ADHD. Would would he have a place in in the schools or are we talking about even, you know, more severe challenges? I I worked with one boy that had ADHD and his parents, um, different than my brother, his parents decided that medication wasn't the route to go. Mm -hmm. Um, So the school, just the second day that he was in the school, they said, nope, that's it. And then where, where does a, where does a young person go then? Yeah. In that situation, we, the kind of the hub of the Anglophone people in Paris was um, the American church. And it okay. didn't necessarily have to do with religion, but it was just where everybody would go to get help. And it turned out to be that someone came and found me and said, Hey, I heard that you, you do something like this. Mm. We need your help. Wow. It, it turned into a full-time job. Um, I was working with one student in the Australian embassy. So I had to get embassy clearance there to go and work with the student. And it just, it kind of snowballed. And by the time we left, I felt like, Oh, this is this is something I could do. It's such a need, a huge need. And so now, so 20 years later, you're in Switzerland now. And I, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is 
when you think about the international school system, because from what I understand and from my experience in international schools, most international schools were not very welcoming or accommodating or had the services or the skilled staff to work with young people with learning needs. Um, And that's definitely changed, I think, in the last eight years, maybe it's, it's getting better. Um, and there's a lot, there's a lot of reasons on the American side. I know there's some, some regulations and laws that changed through the state department that now I think they, they try to find better schools or support schools and in, in finding better services. But I'm curious from your perspective, when you first got into the international school system, all, all the way up to today, how do you think you've seen attitudes, supports, and teacher skills um, change? I I think, you know, there's, to be honest, there are 250 private international schools just in Switzerland. Oh my gosh. Uh, Yeah. And worldwide, we're talking over 11,000, right? So 6 million students are getting services um, from international schools. And if we're very conservatively estimating that 10% of those kids have additional learning needs, that's 600,000 students. That's a a huge number of kids. Um, And often I I think what's happened over the years is that people are are opening their eyes to the fact that this is ethically and morally the right thing to do to have a more diverse population in their school because we want to send good citizens out into the world. And if we are we're creating this bubble. I mean, we're already a bubble within a bubble every time you're in an international school, right? But True. if we are, you know, a third bubble within there that we only take kids that look like this and that can do this and are going to end up at this goal, we're doing everybody a huge disservice. Yeah. And I really, one of my big missions is to have schools stop saying, you know, we'll take those two kids in your family, but not that one. Yeah. And yeah. I think- we are on the precipice of schools, you know, getting to the top of that mountain and saying, okay, we're ready to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but being ready to do that does not mean that you have the skills or the right yeah. people around you. Right. And, or even the right families at your school that, that understand that this is what's best for their children, even if their children are the ones that have special needs. That's right. Yeah. So it's, it's a huge mountain to climb, but I think we can do it. Yeah, I've definitely, I, I agree. I've, I've seen that shift in attitude and shift in values, but I, I do think that there's sort of at the moment, a shortage of skilled educators and it's growing. Um, but now, now that we are in the year 2020, fabulous year for the world. Um, you know, I know it's, there's so many things about, um, equity and access that COVID has shown a light on. And I'm wondering what you've noticed related to, you know, what, what has COVID shown a light on and, and also how is COVID impacting families who have children with special learning needs? It's been in the news quite a bit, um, but it's really a massive issue for families that have kids with, with learning needs when they're doing remote learning. And in the international world, it's not typically barriers to access. It could be um, internet access, right? Because we that's one big, huge issue. Um, but it's not typically, do we have a computer at home? Do we have a person at home? Those kinds of issues that we're seeing in lots of other areas of the world. 
But one of the exciting things that's happened this last week, we started on the the 4th of December, CENIA, the Special Education Network and Inclusion Association, we had to move our conference virtually. What we thought that meant at first was, yeah, we're shoot, we're not going to get all these people together and make these connections. Mm -hmm. But actually, we've had double the number of people attend our conference. Amazing. And yeah, and so we have over 850 people at this conference. And one of the big things that's come up is how are you handling this with COVID and, you know, remote learning or hybrid learning or in-person, but wearing masks. And one of those big issues is masks, right? So if you are an individual that needs to see the whole face, when someone is talking Mm -hmm. and you've, you are covering up three quarters of your face, it's a huge issue. Yeah. Uh, Teachers are learning how to say, I'm smiling, I'm frowning, I'm up. You have to verbalize your emotions Yes. Um, and for a lot of our students, we've had to do that all along anyway, uh, but COVID right. has amplified that. And I think it's also amplified the fact that um, it isn't just kids with special needs that need to have those things verbalized. Absolutely. I realized, and it's not just because of German here in Switzerland, but I realized I look at people's mouths when they talk a lot mm-hmm. more than I knew. So it isn't what I'm hearing, it's what I'm seeing also. And you take that part away from someone's face and you're taking away from me almost 80% of the communication method. So you've got kids on doing remote learning that you can't see the video properly or you can't see the child because they don't want to turn their camera on. Mm -hmm. These are big barriers. Um, And one of the things I do with families when they're transitioning from one school to the next is put together, a I call it a learner profile Mm -hmm. that helps the next school, not just see grade reports, but understand students in terms of what strategies they need to be given to be successful as learners. And in a section that I've added is um, technology skills, because you need to know very quickly what kids can and cannot do when they're entering your classroom, when they're moving mid-year, because it, it is still happening. It's not as su- at, at such a high rate, but it is still happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also need to know kids' comfort levels. And, and if you have a kid with certain issues, are they going to be able to attend to a screen? Are you going to be able to keep them on the Zoom call? Or are they going to be clicking off other places? And you've got to have strategies in place for that immediately. Absolutely. You know, and I, I was thinking about your work and just about, obviously the whole world is in transition and has been in transition for the last year. Um, but the educators I work with on their own stress management and social emotional experience of being educators, a lot of them went through transitions where a community in China some of them left in February and are only just coming back um, without any goodbyes and leaving pets and all their things at home and, and that sort of thing. Um, all the way to, you know, a lot of faculty losing their jobs uh, because of financial constraints, because of lower enrollment. And then also um, people just that were just starting new jobs and it happened to be during COVID and just having to transition. And these are adults fully developed adults with lots of supports and it's so it's so difficult but when I think about families that have special needs that need to be supported through an already difficult time I'm wondering can you tell us you know a couple of examples of what some of the specific challenges families are facing 
in those types of transitions? And what kind of support have you, have you found to be really helpful for parents? You know, I, I know of a specific situation I'm thinking of, of a family that teaches in India, but are living in Australia. What a struggle because they've got three little kids themselves. They're trying to educate their kids at home. They're trying to educate their students online. That's a massive undertaking. So now let's think about a family. Mom and dad are both working. They've got three kids in international school, but they're now remote and, and managing your kids' schedules. And especially kids, um, if we're talking about kids, especially on the autism spectrum, where, where schedule and routine is, is key. That's a massive struggle, especially when we're talking about locations that they couldn't say, this is what's going to happen for the next two weeks. This is what's going to happen for the next month. So you're living in this limbo land. And I think it's really important to be able to take some of that limbo away and say, this is what's going to happen now. Mm -hmm. Take away the timeframe because as soon as there's a timeframe on it, it's adding an extra layer of anxiety and uncomfort. And, and it's not just kids that have that issue. All of us right. do. We all need to know what's coming up, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. and some of us have learned to thrive off that feeling of, who when's the next move coming? But mm-hmm. most kids don't have that. Yeah. And yeah. this notion of, oh, they're so resilient. <laughs> that kills <laughs> me. I know, because we're all just trying to make ourselves feel better because we feel exactly. horrible as parents that we've yeah. ripped them out of this. And now we've layered this whole other thing on top of it that none of us had control over. And I think it's important to tell kids that none of us feel in control right now. And we know that when you feel in control, you feel better. So what are the things you can control and what are the things you can let go? I know you talk about that a lot with your, the people you work with, but we need to use that language with kids too. Definitely. Yeah. Desperately need to know that none of us are feeling good about this. Right. So what, what can we choose to feel good about? And I, I talked, I mean, I did this with my daughter when she was little about a rose in the thorn. What's the rose today? What was the sweet smelling thing of today? What was mm-hmm. your thorn today? It's okay to talk about both, mm-hmm. but it's not okay to dwell on either one. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Got to keep yeah. on moving, but thinking that that's building resiliency in kids is very misguided. I could, I could preach all day about that. I I completely agree. This is the choir. I'm sorry. Yeah, (laughs) no, it's wonderful. Let's keep saying it. Um, so you, you've been very busy lately and you have created an excellent resource for educators and families. And I'm wondering the product and service is called step. And can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, first, just tell us what it is and what it does. Sure. STEP stands for Strategic Tracking of Educational Progress. And um, I've created a database of um, goals and objectives, which all of us in the special education world live off goals and objectives. And the point of them is to track progress over time. Um, because students that have additional learning needs are not progressing at the same speed um, as their peers. So we need to create more minute ways of figuring out if they're making progress and how we can make good decisions about to make sure that they are making progress. Mm-hmm. One of the things is, is the struggle in our international school world is keeping something consistent. Yes. Um, and I visited a school in the spring before all of this happened. Um, 
and one school was doing the same thing in five different ways. And that creates some horrible transitions for our students. So a student was moving from early years to kindergarten or fifth to sixth, and it was like changing schools. Mm. So this program, like I said, has a goal, goals and objectives, about 5,000 of them. And it's layered on top of a, a system that can take data. And the goal for me is to give something to teachers where you can have hard facts, black and white facts, to take some of that emotional piece out of decision-making, especially when we're working with families and we're saying, your kid needs some extra support. And by the way, there's an extra fee for that. So if you aren't going to that and you're starting with an I feel statement, you know, sometimes those are wonderful, but when you're talking about a student's progress, you need some real facts and you need to have some baseline data and say, okay, this is where they are now. Our hope is that in 10 weeks of watching their progress and giving them extra support, this is where they'll be. But if you don't have a way to check that progress, you are going in to talk to families with this ambiguous statement and no one's going to feel good. Mama bear is going to come out really fast. Oh yeah. So if you can go in there and say, this is the progress that Nora has made. Mm -hmm. This is what we need to do to help her make more progress. Mm -hmm. It takes away that whole layer of yucky and and brings it just back to the core of the facts. So that's what STEP is trying to do is to give international schools a program to track progress over time and give them a bank of goals so they can have a common language amongst themselves. I love that. And as this grows and more and more international schools use this tool, then it it provides that consistency across the schools too. So it's right, which is, I I understand. I mean, that's very challenging. I I remember um, when I first came back as a professional working with international schools, I just remember hearing from families about how hard a I'm going to use American language because it's it's the only special education language that I know. But in our in uh, IEPs, the individual education plans, those can be very confusing for parents and for teachers if you don't have a background. And then, um, but then to take that IEP and then to move to I don't know to Germany and then to move to Taiwan and then to move to Indonesia, so much gets lost in translation. Pardon the pun and. Um, and also not every school uses that system. Families need so much support in helping schools read, whether it's an IEP or some sort of a learning plan from their former place. And I'm, I imagine there's probably even a loss of learning too, right? As you go through. Oh, yeah, I, I was just talking about this on the presentation I just did that, you know, if we talk about a student you know, in the international system from early years all the way through graduation, and they move every two or three years, which is what happens, right? Yeah. If you are counting that that student usually takes two or three months to transition and transition well, right? that's two full years of learning. And I'm not going to say that they're losing learning time during that, but it's not up to the level it should be. You know, sending on a report card is not going to tell the teachers what they need to know to shorten that transition period time. So when I was talking about those learning learner plans and profiles that I do, the point is to talk teacher to teacher, just like you would, if you're walking down the hallway to talk from the first grade teacher to the second grade teacher, 
this is what you need to do on the first day of school to make it go well. I know there's a lot. Uh, I was talking to Michael Pollack about this, about how we need to help families through the raft transition process. But a lot of times in this special needs world, parents are afraid to share information because yeah. of past experiences and, yeah. and they want their kids to have a fresh start, which I understand also. Yeah. But Michael was talking about how if we don't reconcile a lot of that information that maybe we've had a bad experience prior. Yeah. We can't, if those teachers aren't helping families go through that process, they're not going to land well, and they're not going to be able to think destination because they're just stuck thinking about the crap that went on before. And they're right. not going to help their kids have a good start when they go to the new school and, and give good information. I mean, it's just so your, your examples just make it so clear that learning is social and emotional and and so is parenting learners you know we we all as parents i'm not a parent but i'm going to say as human beings as adults um you know we have our own learning stories and and some of them were positive and some of them were negative then we have if you're a parent you have you have your children's stories of when things went well and things didn't go well and you bring that into your next school and then your child has their social and emotional experience. And it's just, it's so crazy to, to ever think we shouldn't be treating the whole child, the whole family, the whole system. Rah, rah. Yeah, I know. I'm, rah, rah. Exactly. Right behind you. <laughs> totally right behind you. Yeah. And there's all, you know, we can support one family at a time, but if I can get this in more schools, we yeah. can reach so many more people. And, and that for me has always been about how, you know, like I need to be a helper. How many more people can I help? Yes. And the crux of, and the meat of an IEP, this individual learning education plan, sometimes it's called an ILP or a student learning plan yeah. is these goals and objectives. And they aren't just there for pretty. They're right. there because we want to reach the goals. That's right. And the only way to be able to tell if we're reaching goals is if they're measurable and yeah. we're taking data. And right. some, and for some people, that's an ugly word, but there's so much about what we do that is social and emotional, but there has to be the quantitative piece. Oh, definitely. You have, you have to have the evidence. Otherwise you're just spinning your wheels. And when you think about so much of the work we've been doing lately is on teacher stress. And of course, what's one of the biggest stressors for teachers, it's time crunch. It's the feeling that I don't have enough time to do everything. But I imagine a tool like this is such a capacity builder because it takes a lot of the emotion out. It takes some of the guesswork out. And it also, it's of course, great for the young person to be able to under and their family to understand what learning is happening and what, what kind of progress that young person is making and therefore what kind of supports they might need. But I imagine too, for teachers, if they can see progress being made in very clear ways, then that must be, make them feel more effective, which how then empowering. Helps, yeah, exactly. It helps them to be a better teacher. It helps them to manage their own stress. That's mm -hmm. so critical. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so cool. So if, if people want to, how, how do they access stuff and what, what does that process look like for, for schools or for educators? I've been holding open houses is what I'm calling them, virtual open houses for people to come and see what step really looks like, because you I need a visual. I need to see what something is. And I walk people through it. I just had um, four open houses this week. Um, I tend to have one in a European time zone and then an Asian time zone. I'll be doing those uh, monthly 
And okay. people people can also um, set up a, a personal demo as well. So if you go to uh, remfreeeducationalconsulting.com, um, you can find me there and set up a demo through those channels. Great. We'll put the link in the episode notes. Thank you. So just to, to wrap up, April, I wanted to ask you, you know, when we talk about COVID, we can, we can all get a little negative for obvious, I think for completely fine reasons, but I'm also wondering, is there anything that, that COVID might be pushing forward in a positive way when it comes to, you know, um, supporting all young people in their learning or supporting young people with additional learning needs? hundred million percent. I think this has been the, the great moment and this is horrible to say is all this horrible stuff is going on, but yeah. it's going to launch us forward so much because I, I remember when we first moved here eight years ago, I, I was looking into applying to a PhD program in, in, in Seattle at the university of Washington. And they said, absolutely not. We don't do any remote learning. Are you kidding? <laughs> and if I know that if I went back to that right now, they'd be like, yeah, sure. You bet. We've got this figured out. And, <laughs> right. Right. And I think that's going to happen with our international schools too, is that we're going to figure out that we can do so much more remote. Um, Kids are going to get therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy in ways that we never even fathomed. I mean, this platform that I'm on, they've got a motion capture program which means you set up your phone and it's like the Wii. It tells where your body is in space. And it's it was originally created for nursing homes, you know, to work mm-hmm. on the range of motion for your arm and, and the computer tells if you're making progress or not. Mm-hmm. But think about what we could do for those kids that are in Kazakhstan that don't have a yes. PT right there. Mm-hmm. Or those people that are in, in Indonesia that are flying to get therapy or, or attested, all of those barriers are now removed. Yeah. And and it's only, I think it's only going to improve. It's only going to get better. There's new research about how remote therapies do work. So there are so many possibilities and I can only see it getting better. It's so you, you make me think about some, some mentoring research from about a decade ago. I can't, I cannot think of this person's name. So for everyone, forgive me, but she's a researcher out of Israel and she had done this. She had researched this mentoring program at a university in Israel where uh, they had mentors for students with physical disabilities or disabilities that inhibited their opportunity to get around campus and, 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 you know, form relationships and connect with professors and ask for help and things like that just made it harder Mm -hmm them. And so they decided to do an online mentoring program just like 10 years ago. So it was all like through email, but it was really incredible. And it just opened up their uh, social capital. You know, it built their network that they didn't have access to before just simply because the campus wasn't built for them, you know, um, or there just weren't enough, there wasn't enough support that was 10 years ago. And I, I'll never forget that research. It was so fascinating. And it does. I think sometimes we can see online remote learning or remote mentoring in my case as a temporary substandard fix to a problem when for some populations, not for all, but for some populations, it is the best solution that we could come up with. So 
It's very mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. these days. There are some pretty cool apps that are being developed out of this too. I have some friends in Australia that have created an app called Spokal and it helps families follow up on kids' speech therapy at home. So they're doing little oh. lessons with their kids um, through this app. And it's just those kinds of things are, I think are just going to keep popping up because when there's a will, there's a way, when there's a problem, there's a solution. And yeah, we've got some really creative minds in the world and that's, we do. this is the time to, to rely on them. Absolutely. Well, I love that. I want to end on such a positive note, April. I am so excited that you um, came on to this podcast. I've been wanting to interview you for a while as I've been watching just your work in general. And then when you came out with step, I thought, okay, we have to talk. So I'm so glad that you came on and I really wish you tremendous success. I think it's an excellent tool for schools to have, and that will be so helpful for young people and their families. So thank you for all that you do. And as you're helping others, I hope you take time to take care of yourself as well. It's important. Thank you, Ellen. I really appreciate it. Thank you all for listening to the first episode of season two. For more information about April's work and the tool that she discussed on this episode, please check out the episode notes. You'll also find there a link to the organization Senia that I referenced in the beginning. And I looked up that researcher in Israel that I could not remember. And her name is Dr. Karmit Noah Spiegelman. And I've added a link to her interesting work on online mentoring for disabled university students. If you are still looking for additional resources and support around adult social emotional learning and educator well-being, please visit www.circulusinstitute.org. Please take care of yourself as you take care of others.